You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. So Psalm 130, we've got four more of these Psalms of Ascent left, of these pilgrim psalms, and we're looking at Psalm 130 and 131. So Psalm 130 is actually classed as one of the penitential psalms. So that means the ones that talk a lot about sin and forgiveness, basically. And because of that, I believe it offers some real instructive lessons for the pilgrim, historically, but also for us as pilgrims today. And the first thing that that does is it gives us a true acknowledgement of our sin. And this is something I think it's easy to forget if you've been in the church quite a long time. You become very much used to the routine of church, used to the routine of confession, even in your own life. But sometimes an acknowledgement and a real thinking about what sin actually is, is necessary for the Christian. And then secondly, which follows on from this, it allows you to take a fresh look at hoping in the mercy and forgiveness of God. And these two things always go together when we're talking about them. And of course, the mercy and forgiveness of God leads to salvation. I think part of the problem with this issue is that if we're really honest, quite often we just don't think we're that bad. You understand what I mean? Like, it's always much easier to point fingers at someone else, someone who's been caught in a major scandal or a major sin, or point to some other thing that's going on in the world, or some non-Christian who's a despot or a ruler who's easy to... Sins are obvious, and they're right there, and you can see them, and you can point to them and be like, well, if that's a standard, I think I'm doing pretty well. And that's... Of course, there's a slight grain of truth to that if you're comparing yourself against some people but we don't compare ourselves against other people when we're talking about sin god is the the standard for sin and it says we've all fallen short of the glory of god we haven't sometimes or we we have and then maybe we forget the true ramifications of sin remember it was sin that actually corrupted this world It was sin that brought death and suffering and pain and disease and all of these things that we see that cause so much corrupt, they are the corruption of sin in this world, that cause so much suffering are a result of sin. And it's impossible to say it's directly the result of that person's really bad sins because all of these things are connected somewhere down the line. And therefore, we, as sinners ourselves, are involved in that. And thus, when we think about it like that, the only avenue we have available to us is to cry out and plead for the mercy and forgiveness of God. And that is exactly what you're going to see this pilgrim do here in this psalm. Sometimes we need to spend some time in the depths of despair over our sin to fully realise how marvellous our redemption is. And those two things are like different sides of the same coin, I would say. So with that, let's just read, we'll read the whole of this psalm in one go, it's only eight verses, and then we'll comment on it. It says, Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul does wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Now, it's a wonderful little psalm. I love this psalm particularly for a historical reason I'm going to share with you now. 
I've often told you stories about John Wesley, haven't I, in the Wesleyan Revival a few times here. I'm going to do that again right now. If any of you have ever been to Aldersgate in London, do you remember I told you the story of the, the Moravian prayer chain? Aldersgate is where they had one of their meetings, and this is where John Wesley got saved. You can go there today, and they have a monument, a massive bronze monument called the Aldersgate Flame. So there's a ministry that will do t- walking tours of London and they take you on all the, the famous church history sites. Yeah, I mean, it's a really fun thing to do. And they take you up to this Aldersgate Street. Uh, there's not actually a church there anymore. It's just a, an office building. But they still have this massive bronze. Uh, it's kind of designed to look like a flame to represent the Holy Spirit. And on the front of it, it has just a massive scroll text. of It's a page from John Wesley's diary. It's the page actually from his diary that narrates his experience there in that church. And I want to uh, read it to you now. And bear in mind, we're studying Psalm 130. So this is Wednesday, May the 24th, 1738. You can read this online in John Wesley's diary, or you can go online and just Google the Aldersgate flame, and you can read it directly off there. It says, what occurred on Wednesday the 24th, I think best to relate at large after premising what what might make it better understood. It's old-fashioned language, okay, bear with me. Let him that cannot receive it ask of the Father of lights that he would give more light, both to him and to me. I think it was about five this morning that I opened my testament on those words. There are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, even that ye should be partakers in the divine nature, 2 Peter 1.4. He then says, just as I went out, I opened it again on these words, thou art not far from the kingdom of God. Now, I love the way, if you, if you, when you see in a moment, that the Lord, the Spirit, was obviously leading John Wesley to salvation on this day. And he used the scripture, he used various different things. Let me just carry on. He says, in the afternoon, I was asked to go to St. Paul's. And the anthem that was being sung said this, Out of the deep I have called unto thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice, O let thine ears consider well the voice of my complaint. If thou, Lord, will be extreme to mark what is done amiss... O Lord, who may abide it? But there is mercy with thee, therefore thou shalt be feared. O Israel, trust in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is plenteous redemption, and he shall redeem Israel from all his sins. In the evening I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street, where one was reading from Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God worked in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. John Wesley. Now, obviously, I hope you noticed that he he quoted the entire Psalm 130 as, as part of his conversion story. And interestingly, it wasn't someone reading it. This was actually a choir singing it. So I like that. It just shows us, again, shows us the power of singing the word of God and what we do when we're worshipping the Lord there. It can be a very powerful thing. And I just love the progression here, that he woke up and he read about the precious promises. He was told that he wasn't far from the kingdom of God. He then heard this psalm, which is a psalm of confession and forgiveness and redemption being sung. And then he went to a meeting and he heard an exposition of grace, faith being saved by salvation through grace. And he was saved. And that's the story of John Wesley. And that's why I love this psalm. So let's get into it a little bit. It says, out of the depths, verse 1, I have cried to you, O Lord. 
Out of the depths I have cried to you. Now often, remember, in these psalms, how many times have we seen people crying out to God from a place of personal anguish and pain? All the time, almost every other psalm, you seem to be hearing some sort of cry in anguish or pain. Often uh, it's just sorrow, sometimes confusion, sometimes it's poverty, sometimes it's danger, sometimes it's because you're being attacked, quite literally physical danger. A lot of the time it's pain, um, pretty much everything you see in these psalms that causes the cry to God. And they're all valid things. If you've been through any of those scenarios, you probably are aware of the fact that you often cry out to God more when you're in those situations. I think that's one of the points here. But the, the cry specifically here seems to be a realisation of the depth of his guilt due to sin. So the focus of this psalm is that he is crying out because he is trapped in his sin. And this is a, a needed realisation in any conversion experience, but I also say it's something that needs to be remembered throughout the pilgrim journey. See, it says in the book of Hebrews, doesn't it, that we can still become entangled in sin. We can still fall, we can still trip ourselves up, and sometimes it's very hard to get yourself back up, and that's when you cry out in these times of despair to the Lord. Or sometimes you may have fallen into sin, circumstances around you have got out of control, you can really make up any scenario that you want. Been through them, if we were to pool our collective experiences here, we'd have lots of different things like that. But it is something we need to focus on, and this psalm is going to look at it a little bit. Whatever the circumstance was for this psalmist, we don't know. But remember, this is also a pilgrim psalm, so it does chart a something in the journey that pilgrims have as they are approaching the house of the Lord. One of the things we should do when we approach the house of the Lord, when we come to minister, when we come to worship, to serve, is we examine our hearts, don't we? Before I mean, you should be. We do this. I do it every time before I come to preach, before I come to church. We do it when we take communion, don't we? That's why whoever's leading quite often will say, just take a moment, confess, deal with, deal with any business you have to deal with with the Lord. It's the same principle here. When we come up to the house of the Lord, we want a clean slate and we plead the mercy and forgiveness of God. But the correct course of action when you're in those dark places, those depths. Uh, the word out of the depths here has the connotation of being in the sea, actually. And the Israelites did not like the sea. Even to this day, Israel, they don't like sea. They don't have much of a navy. They just never really uh, liked the sea. It was always synonymous with <laughs> Jonah, I guess, but, fear, but just something they didn't want to go to. And that is the sea. But here he's crying out of the depths and he's crying out to the Lord. That is really the only correct course of action you could say when you're in these situations. Look at verse 2. He says, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplication. So this is the heart of his pleading. This is his prayer, if you could say. This is a, a sinner's prayer, we could call it that. We see the desperation of this man, of this psalmist. Hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. He goes on. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? So we see an acknowledgement of two things in this verse. Firstly, I think he's acknowledging that God is omniscient. That is the, the theological term for a God who sees and knows or sees everything, basically. He sees all sins. Nothing can be kept hidden from him. No situation is interpreted wrongly by him. Nothing escapes his notice. This is what it means to be omniscient. A few verses. Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place keeping watch on the evil 
and the good. And I like verses like that um, because we're saved. We don't need to fear the wrath of God in that respect. We have the blood of Jesus and our lives are hid with him in God. But it also explains to me the principle of justice, that one day God will make everything and all things right, and he, he does see everything. Jeremiah 23, verse 24. Can a man hide himself in the secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. And of course, the answer to Jeremiah the prophet is no. There is nowhere that you can hide. So that's his first acknowledgement, I believe, in those few verses. Secondly, he knows that he is a sinner. And this is an important concept. This is a confession You see, even the holiest of lives, we all have people we look up to in the Christian faith. We often romanticize the people of past generations, like people like John Wesley, for example, that we speak about a lot, or these different people that we look up to, different teachers maybe that we respect, and that's, that's absolutely fine in one respect. However, even what we would say, if I could say it, the holiest of lives or the most mature Christians we know you place them alongside the Lord Jesus and you'll see how stained they really are. And that is for everyone, really. When we place our own lives up against the law of God, one of its purposes was to reveal to us that we needed a saviour, i.e. that we are sinners, that we are separated from God. So the psalmist here knows that no one can stand before God. If you were to say, I could stand up before my fellow men... And I could say, I'm not guilty. I haven't done that. People are slandering you and you can defend your innocence. That might be the case. But when we stand in front of the presence of a holy God, the only thing we can really affirm is if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? And that is an acknowledgement more about him, but also about our state too. So he says, who could stand? Psalm 1 verse 5 says, therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment nor sinners in the assembly of righteous. The wicked will not stand in in the judgment. Romans 14.4 says, Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. And that's the key there. In answer to the psalmist's questions, who can stand? Only those who are relying on the Lord to make them stand are the ones who will stand in front of the Lord. Only in the Lord can we stand. And why is this? Because only in the Lord are our sins dealt with. That's quite simply the answer there. Colossians 3.3 For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. I love that verse. It's one of my my favourite verses. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. It just tells you of everything that God has done to you. I get this sort of image of being brought right into the inner circle of God's love there and your life is hidden with Christ. And of course, it means that your sin is not held against you on the day of judgment. 1 Peter 5.12 says that we also stand firm in the grace of God. 1 Thessalonians 3.8 says we stand firm in the Lord himself. And I could go through, we stand firm in his word, we stand firm on a number of different things. Let's go back to Psalm 130, verse 4. He says, but with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. You see, the psalmist knew, and this was probably from his life experience, with God there is forgiveness. And sometimes we forget that. I forget how many times I've been speaking with people or witnessing, and they always say, you don't know what I've done. God can't forgive me. 
And the answer is always the same. With God, there is forgiveness. And, and that's it. I don't necessarily want to know what they're talking about, but that's between them and the Lord. With God, there is forgiveness. That is really a central statement to the Christian faith. That is one of the central tenets of the God that we proclaim. It is a God who, he is a God who forgives. And the fact that God pardons, this is really the only hope for the Christian life. Because remember what he said, if it was about our sins or about our conduct, who could stand? No one could stand in the Lord. But because it's actually about sins and also forgiveness, those who stand in the Lord can stand. That's what the lesson is here. Only those who stand in the Lord in their Christian life will stand. So we don't try and explain away our sin in front of the Lord. We all have a tendency to do this. We don't try and list to him the circumstances that made it very easy for us to maybe fall into temptation. We don't blame him for all these different things in our life that meant we had to follow a particular course of action that led us into sin. In short, we don't justify it because all of those things will do you no good ultimately. Simply, as this psalmist does here, we confess it for what it is, sin, and we rely and hope in the mercy and forgiveness of God. That is the call of the Christian. Micah 7.18, who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever, but he delights in his unchanging love. Who is like God who pardons iniquity and delights in his unchanging love? That is the God we worship. And then it says that you may be feared. There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Now, the idea of this, this statement is that when you experience the depth of his forgiveness in your life, it will give you a much fuller realisation of the awesome holiness of God and of his desire to forgive that flows from that unchanging love that Micah is talking about there. And this will create a true fear, awe, reverence, respect, gratitude and reciprocal love to the Lord when you go through it like that. Luke 7, 47. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And I, I always find that verse, that's one of Jesus' comments there, such a challenging concept. But when Jesus says she loves much because she has been forgiven much, remember if we, like I said, if we don't really think we're that bad, like if we are always thinking, well, I haven't done any of the major things. In that case, you don't really think you've been forgiven for that much. Yes, you've been forgiven and saved, but it's a tendency to think in. But if that's our attitude, we're in danger of actually being the fulfillment of this verse ourselves. If we don't feel like we've been forgiven much, then we're unlikely to forgive others much. We're not going to love much. So this is another reason why it's very important for us to actually take hold of the seriousness of sin, hold ourselves up to that holy law and just throw ourselves on the cross of Jesus Christ, on his mercy, on his grace, and on his forgiveness. Ephesians 4.32, a lovely verse. Be kind to one another. Don't you think kindness is quite a lost art, it seems to be, in our cultural uh, moment in history right now? Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So you see how these things are related to our conduct they're very very practical points that he is making here when you understand what god has forgiven you you will be more inclined to give that love to someone else to try and basically represent what god has done to you he goes on in the psalm he says i wait for the lord my soul does wait and in his word do i hope 
So he's having pleaded, he's confessed in prayer now, we see the psalmist now waiting. And quite often that's the situation, isn't it, when we're praying. We like to have instant results. We like God to resolve this situation very, very quickly. If it was up to us, we'd like him to take us out of that situation, put us in a new situation within our own time scale. But unfortunately, uh, we don't have. Thankfully, the Lord's timing is always perfect. But now we see there's a time of just waiting on God. God will deliver us in his own time. Sometimes it may be that he needs to see acts in keeping with confession, the fruits of repentance, we might call it. Confession is a very easy thing if it's just mere words. It's not true confession, obviously, is it, if you're doing that? But I think we've probably all had that moment where we've confessed rather too glibly. We've done it again and again, confessed again and again. And sometimes I believe the Lord will will need to see more than that, more than just words, actually positive action and steps that show us we are not wanting to fall into those areas again and it says he hope he hopes that's the same word could be translated wait there you might have wait in some of your bibles often the same word is actually translated trust in many places we trust in his word and this is a key it means we have confidence our expectation that god will redeem us that god will forgive us is grounded in the revealed word of god and for me that's one of the greatest comforts because we have it here finished the canon is finished the promises are written down for us they're true they're sure the bible says that not one word of all his good promises will fail and he promises if we confess he will forgive us and that is the grace really that we have as christians in this world and it is quite amazing and that's over as many times as we need it we boldly approach the throne of grace verse six my soul waits for the lord more than the watchman for the morning, indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. So he basically repeats this, this little phrase here. The idea is, in, in Israel and in ancient times, cities would often have people designated as watchmen. They would patrol the city gates and patrol important areas of the city, looking for trouble, looking for invaders. It was quite a dangerous job. It was quite a, a, a lonely situation. And the idea is that they would be waiting for that sunrise to come up and then they know their shift is over the night, the dangerous time is over, and the day begins again. And so they, as the early hours approached, they would be there just waiting for that sunrise. This is the same concept that he's trying to convey. This is how he waits for the promises of God. He's just eagerly watching and expecting, knowing that they will happen. You see, none of these watchmen ever sat there on the wall thinking, the sun's not, you know, there's going to be no day, the sun's not going to rise. They had confidence it was going to happen, yet still they were there every morning waiting expectantly for it and that's a very good you can see this is why i believe he repeats this concept it's a very good analogy for how we wait for the fulfillment of god's promises we've prayed for deliverance for confession or for a circumstance or whatever it may be and we know that he will forgive us or he will redeem us or do whatever it is in that situation because he has promised it but we still have to wait expectantly it will be in his timing he says oh israel hope in the lord For with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. O Israel, hope in the Lord. Justice with Israel, sometimes even when sin is confessed, there are still consequences that play out in the world. And we have to understand that. Confession doesn't always mean you're going to get your mess cleaned up. Sometimes you do have to go through that yourself, and that is also part of the learning process. 
does mean you're forgiven. You'll never have that sin held against you in the sense of a judgment. But in this world, these things have uh, situations. We don't always get instant resolution of our situations. Israel knew this better than anyone. The wilderness wanderings lasted for two generations. They knew about waiting. The exile in Babylon was 70 years. They knew about waiting, probably much better than we do. Confession of sin did not bring about an immediate possession of the land, the immediate fulfillment of the promises that they had. There were still consequences that played out for their rebellion. This is the same with us. We are forgiven, aren't we? We know that 100%. It's a promise. We can have utter assurance that we will be with the Lord when he comes for us or when we die. We have utter assurance for that. Yet right now, some of the promises remain unfulfilled, if I could put it like that. What I mean is that we still inhabit these bodies of death. And yes, we want to cry out with Paul, who shall deliver me from this body of death? One day it will be Christ Jesus that does that in his victory. But right now, that's not quite fully consummated. That's a promise we await for the future. In the meantime, the believer must focus on this deliverer. Verse 5, we rely on him. Verse 5, we wait for him. Verse 6, we yearn for him. Verse 7, we hope for him. This is our attitude. And this, again, reminds me of that watchman on the walls. Just watching and waiting, looking forward to when the day dawns. And this is what we are when we're watching. To, this is why it says we are to eagerly watch and wait for our blessed hope from heaven, the appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Eagerly watching, expecting, knowing that the promise will be fulfilled. And because he is a God that is full of loving kindness, it says then in the next verse, and with him is abundant redemption. Now that is a wonderful phrase. He could have just said with him is redemption and it would have had the exact same theological point. We would have understood it and it would have meant exactly the same, but he didn't. He said with him is abundant redemption. And I think this is really trying to say it is more than ample for our needs. No matter how great our sin, no matter how far we've fallen, no matter what it is we are involved in at that time, it can be more than matched by his redemption. His redemption is always enough to meet the need. The provisions of his grace are unexhausted and they are also inexhaustible by us. Isaiah 55 verse 7, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Notice the similar phrasing there. Abundant redemption and he will abundantly pardon. This is the God of Israel. And then it says, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities in the final verse there. And really for me, that is just a summation. It's a confident conclusion to this entire psalm that he knows he will be forgiven because of the mercy and the forgiveness of God. And this is a good reminder for us as pilgrims to take seriously sometimes. I don't say we want to dwell on it all the time. Put it in the context of all the psalms of ascent. This is really the main one that's dealt with this issue. So if you're always focusing on this issue, you're probably going to be slightly out of balance. And I've met Christians who are like this, always, always on about their sin or sin in someone else, and it, it's a consuming focus in their life. You've got to have balance. Go through the whole of the Psalms of Ascent again. Look at the things that the other psalmists were looking forward to, and you'll get a good balance there. But there is a time and a place for that, and this, this is one of those psalms. Let's move on straight into Psalm 131. This is one of the shortest psalms in the actual whole of the Psalter. It's only three verses. Let's just read the whole thing. O Lord, my heart is not proud. 
nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rest against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Charles Spurgeon said that this is one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. It speaks of a young child, but it contains the experience of a man in Christ. I thought that was a lovely little uh, way of phrasing this. And what he's getting at here is that the things in this psalm are learned by experience. One of the words that you often see in the Bible translated as knowledge or knowledge of Christ and, and these things, it's a knowledge that is referring to an experiential knowledge, something that has to be learned on the battlefield, we could say. It's very easy to learn knowledge theoretically. It was not very easy, but it's much easier to learn knowledge theoretically. We do this all the time. I mean, it's a valid way to learn, don't get me wrong. It's part of what we do, but on a small level, we can do this in the church too. It's very easy, like I've done it my whole life. You read people's books, you listen to other people's sermons, and you can even repeat their truths, and you can fully affirm and agree with what they're saying, yet just doing that is slightly different to the person who's put a lifetime of walking with the Lord into forming those statements. Do you understand what I mean there? Like their statements are coming from a lifetime of experience. It's very easy to be edified from them, listen to them, and I actually suggest that we do do that too. But as long as we don't assume that that's necessarily our experience at this stage. There are certain things you can only learn by experience, regardless of, of the truth of the matter. And I think this is what Spurgeon was getting at here. In the Midrash, which is Jewish inter interpretation, they often made associations uh, with David's life for different events in this psalm. So they have, in brackets, they have, when it says, my heart is not proud, they associated this with the moment when Samuel anointed him king. It says, when my eyes were haughty, this was when he slew Goliath and he became a hero. And then it says, neither did I involve myself in great matters. They associated this was when he was restored to kingship. And then all things are too difficult for me. They associated this when he had the Ark of God brought out of the Philistine captivity. And it's quite a fascinating way they make those allusions. But let's look at it in a little more detail. He says, O oh Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty. Now, being proud, arrogant, or we could say loudly opinionated, having an overly high opinion of ourself, often results in a lack of humility and a lack of peace, actually, with yourself and with others around you, if you've ever been in that situation or, or seen someone operating like that, you'll notice it causes tension usually, doesn't it? That's just one of the things that it does. James 4.6, he gives greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, gives grace, but gives grace to the humble. Obviously, he's quoting from the book of Proverbs there, the apostle James. David rejected his pride. He was saying he was not arrogant. He's done great things, but he's also learned great humility. If you think of the life of David, he really has gone through uh, a lot of experience to learn the lessons he has. Proverbs 6.16, pride is one of the things that the Lord hates. And quite simply, yeah, he's very, very clear about it. Pride has its seat in the heart, but a lot of people say the principal expression is actually through the eyes. The eyes being the window of the soul, you can tell a lot by what a person looks at. Proverbs 6.16, there are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven, which are an abomination to him. And the first one is proud eyes, haughty eyes. 
And that's a very challenging. You know, you think of all the things that the Lord could list of abominations. Think of all the things that you could read about, the crimes, the, the atrocities, and on and on. And the Lord says he hates proud eyes. And I think his point is that most of those different things at some point can be traced back to this. And a lot of people make the association that this was, in fact, the original sin uh, of Lucifer in those days. It's an interesting thought. He says, nor do I involve myself in great matters. David rejected selfish ambition. He was not focused on positions or power, not on fame or fortune. He didn't need to be the smartest or the best warrior or the best king. He knew that God would exalt the humble in due time, and he knew that the proud God would also bring down. That is the lesson of Proverbs. Now, this does not refer, uh, saying that you don't involve yourself in great matters, this does not refer to being faint-hearted in the Christian walk. We are told to have boldness and expect great things. It always makes me think of William Carey, the missionary who said, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. I think that, you know, that still stands true. This verse is not really referring to that. But this is here referring to someone who's always, we could say, in everyone's business with the intention of advancing their own personal agenda. This is the pursuit of selfish ambition. In the book of Philippians, remember, Paul says there are even people who preach the gospel with selfish ambition. They're doing it to try and make Paul look bad, to elevate their own ministry. And ultimately, this was pride at the root of this. And Paul also says, actually, I don't care as long as Christ is being preached. The Lord will bring fruit from his word there. But those people will probably, you'd imagine at some point, the verse in Proverbs that they will be humbled will be made true for them. And it's a challenging concept for us all. You see, the humble man, the humble man is content with serving God wherever God has placed him at that moment. David Polinson, he wrote a book called Seeing with New Eyes. He's a Bible expositor. He phrased this in a very interesting way. I want to just share it with you. He said, to really understand this psalm, to think deeply about it, consider reading it in its opposite form. He calls this the anti-psalm of Psalm 131. And he phrases it like this. So let's just read, let's just read it in the, in the Bible again. So, oh Lord, my heart... Let me see. I've done something very naughty. I've brought my ESV Bible here today and I've got my notes in my NASB. So I couldn't find my actual Bible. Oh Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rest against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth forevermore. And the anti-psalm is self my heart is proud, I'm absorbed in myself, my eyes are haughty, I look down on other people and I chase after things too great and difficult for me, so of course I'm noisy and restless inside. It comes naturally, like a hungry infant fussing on his mother's lap, like a hungry infant I'm restless with my demands and my worries, I scatter my hopes onto anything and everybody all the time. And sometimes that's a valid way to learn, if you look at the antithesis of what you're trying to learn, the opposite of it, it can serve to highlight just how ugly what the Lord is actually warning us about really looks like. So let's just finish up this psalm quickly. He says, Surely have I composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rest against his mother. And this is the emphasis of what David is really talking about here. Yes, it's all the Lord's work, but notice he says, I have, there's an emphasis on what he has done here. So it's again, it's not just passively sitting around expecting the Lord to just sort of magically do things for you. 
Sometimes the Lord has given us instructions and he is actually waiting for us to sort of fulfil them, uh, to obey them, to walk in obedience. We order our lives to facilitate this quiet rest of the soul. And quite frankly, it's talking about being content in the Lord, actually. The question could be, how do I compose or quiet myself in the midst of all that I am facing in my life? That's really the question. All of us will ask that question at some point in our lives. Paulinson continues in his commentary. He says, in answer to this question, he says, in colloquial phrasing, we would say, how do we get a grip on ourselves at this time? He says, identify areas of your life that pride is showing. Identify desires, opinions, agendas, irritabilities, anxieties, and fears that you have that trip you up when you're following Christ. Identify them all and then replace those things with Christ by focusing more on him than you do on those other things, and that is the challenge of whether you're doing it correctly or not. And I think if many of us are honest, it's much easier to spend more time focusing on our immediate problems than it is focusing on the person, nature, character, loving kindness, mercy, forgiveness of Christ. But could it be that that is the actual remedy for the things we're facing at that time? You see where he goes on, look for strength for God to accomplish this. Cast yourself on his mercy. He says, have a psalm-generated conversation with yourself. And if any of you have ever prayed the psalms, you'll know what he means by that. Have a psalm-generated conversation with yourself, then go to the Lord for that conversation and expect the fulfilment of it. And he says, live out Psalm 130 and Psalm 131. He goes on, not the psalm now, not Polinson. He says, like a weaned child rests against his mother. Now, the idea is that this is childlike faith. We've heard that phrase before, and it is responsible for the rest in soul. I will make a caveat there. It says childlike faith, not childish faith. Okay, there's a big difference there. A lot of people I see mistake those two. People often confuse it. Notice it also says weaned, a weaned child, not one who is weaning. It's past tense, as in this person has already been weaned. So that is the, the process, obviously, of coming off food that's reliant on the mother. Weaning consists of breaking the child's dependence on his mother and satisfying those immediate desires, and thus allows a relationship with the mother to be based on who the mother is, on other things like love and care and compassion. And obviously, it's only an analogy here, but you get the principle a child not yet weaned embraces his mother immediately for the food, for food, basically, isn't it? For that thought, the relationship is different there. And then a weaned child who is not having that same relationship has a different relationship as it grows. It's actually a more mature relationship, you could say. The idea that he's trying to convey, I believe, with this is that we rest in God. We must rest in God because we know who he is and what he has done not strictly because what he can do for me. And that's often the mistake that we make. Almost like that weaning child, we go simply for what we need at the time, and our whole relationship with the Lord is based on, I need this, give me this, I need this, give me this. Whereas the more mature relationship is, I love you, Lord, thank you for doing this, and then you move on like that. I think that's the idea that he's trying to express here. So thus, resting in the Lord, having this quietness of soul, is actually a mark of a man who's growing, or a man or woman who's growing in maturity uh, in faith. Because as you do that, you get that humble desire to just draw near to God. One of your greatest desires is just to draw near to God. And I think that's what he's getting at here. And then he ends by saying, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth forevermore. 
David's hope in the Lord makes all of that possible, really. And this is the secret that all Israel must learn, and I think this is the secret that all of us here today, every pilgrim alive today, every Christian, must learn this lesson too. Notice that both of these two psalms end with an exhortation to hope in the Lord. And remember, hope, you could say trust, you could say wait, all of those things have the same idea here. We trust in the Lord that he will hear our prayers. We trust that he has mercy and grace to forgive us. We trust in him to fulfill the promises in his word. We hope because with him there is loving kindness and redemption. We trust that he exalts the humble. We trust that he will meet our needs. We trust that contentment in him will quiet and give rest for our souls. And all of these things, I would say, are for us today, are wrapped around the person of Jesus Christ as we hope in the Lord. And then it says, from this time forth and forever. So right now, wherever you are in your walk, whatever stage you're at, the Lord knows and he's calling you. If you're a new believer, if you've been a believer for a long time, the message here is the same. Hope in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Wait on the Lord and see him fulfill his promises. And then it says, and forever. And a concept here, I believe, is think of the child. Once a child is weaned, you don't go back to the breast, do you? You've moved on. You've grown, you've grown up. Your relationship grows. It evolves. It changes. It matures. It deepens. That is what he's getting at here. And it should be like that until the day that we see him like he is. Amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.